0: I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yat. I'm Eli Sands. You're listening to Deep Cut. Laugh, laugh, laugh. Cry, cry, cry. On Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular
1: film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss that director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to.
2: If this is your first time listening to our show, welcome, and if not, welcome back. We're returning from a very short hiatus from our main series, but really excited to be back again. Yeah. Agree? Disagree? (laughs) Agreed. 100%. Agreed. (laughs)
1: Agreed.
2: If you're enjoying the show, please remember to give us a rating or review and subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can keep up with us at Deep Cut Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd. And if you want to talk about this movie with us or any other film, television, or whatever you're interested in, join us on our Discord server and you can find a link to that in the description. Are you guys excited to be back with a new series? And we're going whole hog on this (laughs) joanna (laughs) hog oh Oh, not quite not (laughs) Mm, yet not Not quite quite. not yet maybe
1: (laughs) (laughs) i am so excited guys i know we've had a few episodes by the time this episode comes out we'll have a few episodes before this but just getting back into the groove of diving into a single director's work is something Mm. that i cherish so much about making this podcast with you guys and i think just being able to immerse yourself in an artist's world for two weeks three weeks and really getting into their mind i feel like just increases my appreciation for their work and other people's work i don't know it's just it's a good practice to have and i'm happy to be back out on the fields practicing with you guys not on the fields. on the <laughs> webs, whatever.
0: <laughs> on the Perfectly said, Wilson. I totally agree.
1: <laughs> and
0: there's no one else I'd rather be doing it with. So
2: there. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> So this episode, we're going to be introducing our series on Miranda July's full filmography of only three films. And we're going to begin with her most recent film that came out in 2020 called Cajillionaire. And this is going to be a spoiler-filled discussion. And if you haven't seen it, be sure to go find it if you can and for me in singapore i could easily find it on netflix so there's that i'm not sure about hong kong and the u.s it was on netflix here i had to rent it you had to rent it in the u.s i paid four american dollars a good price (laughs) yeah it was good it wasn't a cajillion. (laughs) So Kajina is a film about a family of small-time grifters That are made up of two minor con artists Like, extremely minor Who have trained their 26-year-old daughter To swindle and scam to survive (laughs) Alongside imparting her with some serious neuroses They live on the margins of society And can barely make ends meet And during one of their heists They charm a stranger into joining them Only to have their entire world turned upside down Dum-dum-dum Dum, dum, so before dum, we maybe like go too deep into this, I kind of want to ask you guys what you
1: think about Cajillanera. I think we should start with Wilson. <laughs> Lol. I've never seen this in the notes where you decide who goes first, but I <laughs> yeah. think it's a good idea because there's just this l- lull, this little silence that happens.
2: <laughs> yeah, but we edit that out. <laughs> I have a reason for picking Wilson.
1: <laughs> I have it's a reason. True. It's true. But in the moment, in the moment, it's a little <laughs> awkward. Uh, but this was the second time that I've seen Kajillionaire. And Kajillionaire was the first Miranda July I ever watched. It really took me by surprise. You're going to hate me for this. But I watched it because it topped Karsten Runquist. <laughs> best of 2020 list that year. <laughs> and I watched it
2: because you watched it because it topped Carson Runquist's top 2020 list. So, so thank you to this person.
1: Yeah, we really gotta thank <laughs> Carson Rundquist. DM us. <laughs> or don't. <laughs> or don't. Or don't. Or don't. But I ended up being a big fan of this movie and it was one of my favorite movies of 2020. And what i really love about this movie was how weird everyone was in the same way it's it's quirky and this is gonna be a word that i will continue to use throughout this director series but it was weird in not a way that like house of gucci or elvis is weird i don't know why i'm pulling up these two why comparisons. are these your touchstones but okay but i think but i think Elvis and House of Gucci are movies where directors are trying to reach for something beyond the norm. And what ends up happening is that all the actors in the film have a different idea. They have a different idea of what kind of different from the norm the director is trying to go for. And then it ends up splintering the movie in so many ways. Whereas Kajillionaire... I think everyone understands what july 's trying to do in this movie. All the actors understand what what she 's trying to do and what story she 's trying to tell at the heart of this, which is a love story and Everyone is dialed in at the same wavelength and I also just love how simple it when you boil down to it, it is just a, like a quintessential American love story. Where you have a lead character who is in some sort of peril or some sort of crisis and is saved by this outsider. I think the way that Evan Rachel Wood plays a character so deprived of love and to just see that growth through the film is such an incredible, magical thing. and. There are a couple things that I do want to talk about more that includes the, the complex and emotional score composed by Emil Mosseri, who made a few bangers that year as well. And um, I do think the ending that really, really sticks the landing is, is something that I also want to get into.
2: I will not talk about why I you, but I want to hear what Eli thinks about Phil first. And you know I like it. I, I, I'm choosing Miranda July. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so like Wilson, this is the first Miranda July that I viewed. I hadn't seen it before the other day when I watched it. And I didn't really respond to the movie. I didn't feel very emotionally engaged. I'm coming into this conversation mostly curious about what connects so strongly to you guys. I'm trying to fight. And <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm conflict avoidant. <laughs>
1: Fight him, Eli
0: (laughs) (laughs) I refuse I'm a movie pacifist (laughs) I guess in the Brief bullet point Sort of opening We do for reactions I'll say that I think Gina Rodriguez Is really wonderful I think Richard Jenkins Is one of the best Emotional breakdowners In the biz (laughs) Mm. I am very unpersuaded By Evan Rachel Wood's performance And find it very hard To access I believe that the design of the quote unquote quirky humor is to sort of disarm you and make you open to the sentiment later on, which is something that is tried and true, but this brand of quirkiness for whatever reason didn't hit me and didn't disarm me in the way that I think it's intended to. When it comes to the ending, And really a lot of character decision-making throughout. I don't find choices to be consistent or internally motivated and more externally mandated by the writer. And just in the end, I am not really buying what July is selling here. I don't feel moved. However, I am, again, mostly just curious to hear why you guys love it so much because it's clearly a movie that means a lot to you both and that's what i'm mostly curious about
1: Mm. no sale huh
2: no sale i really wanted to talk about this word quirky when we get like deeper into this yeah that's that warrants breaking down (laughs) that's a landmine when it comes to miranda july Mm. like, and i think it's also the word that comes around when we think about how divisive she is as a filmmaker I was just checking my viewing history, but I saw me you, and me, and you and everyone we know first before seeing Kajillionaire. And I remember liking that, like, more or less. And then not really sure how I feel about her as a whole, as a filmmaker or an artist. Because I could tell that she would be this person that's on the fence for a lot. Like, she's like a, she's a litmus test person. Mm-hmm. Like, as an artist, she's a litmus test. It tells you the kind of person or, like, art that you appreciate, I think. And she is right; like she is that acid strip litmus test. For me, I think watching Kajillionaire with this kind of odd third degree recommendation, (laughs) I fully had no idea what to expect when I was watching it. I kind of went in with like zero context, and it that first time watching it, it really was such a surprising experience. Because yes, there's a lot of quirk, but. (laughs) All of that is hiding something that I felt was extremely emotionally powerful. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it comes from the characterization more than anything. And the kind of ethos that Miranda July kind of exudes in her life's work outside, including and outside of film. Mm. Hmm. And that's the stuff that I think really speaks to me. It's almost like Miranda July's like preoccupations are a direct feed into my mind Hmm. even if her personality or her vibe or her quirk is actually something that i find very strange or like sometimes i feel could possibly have put me off from her but for some reason she's able to get me on board on this like world that she builds like with this film and also with her body of work that i i'm i'm in i want to see what she does for the rest of her life Mm -hmm. and that's what i think really draws me to this like i think the performances are great and i totally buy that central love story and i think every rachel Wood gives like the best performance of her life and will for the rest of her life and i will make a case for that with Wilson helping me
1: (laughs) (laughs) can i just first say you talking about your first time watching kajillionaire reminds me of your review of the first time you watched Kajillionaire. And it's so eye-catching because you basically do, you can search it up. You can search it on with You can search up Ben's first review of Kajillionaire. It is a play-by-play of how Ben reacts to to every turn or like every reveal to him in this movie. And it's so entertaining. And I sort of watching it this time, I read Ben's review afterwards. And I I know what you mean. Probably eighty percent of the lot, the, the time. <laughs>
2: you can track it like the if the events that happen. Dramatic reading. Dramatic reading. That's a lot.
1: Yeah, we could do a dramatic reading to close out the episode. To
2: close out. Or right now. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll try. I gotta find this review. Oh
1: yeah, you it's you called it an emotional graph. Oh yes! Ooh, so poetic. Then <laughs> I mean, I
2: wrote this after the fact. I think I can't remember an emotional graft. Because obviously, I wasn't thinking I'm gonna go write this before I watched a movie. So I, I love that. Her, huh? she's in. Sorry, go, 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 go. <laughs> okay, this is a dramatic reading of a fucking letterbox review.
1: I feel like I'm gonna. Cringe myself to death. (laughs) Why do I feel like this is not the first time we've done this? You made me do this before. Because
0: it's not. I peer pressured Ben into reading his Letterbox reviews so many times on air. (laughs) (laughs) Because they're good,
3: Jackie.
2: (laughs) Okay, I'm just gonna start. Hmm, what is this movie? This is so weird. Hmm, kind of bored. Where is this going? This is so all over the place. I don't get it. Ah, huh, she's in this., huh, what's going on? Wait, hold up a minute. hold up. No, it can't be. Uh, um, um, what the fuck? Oh, okay, is this going to make me cry? Am I gonna fucking cry? No, there's no way. Oh, oh no, she's she's fucking doing it. Okay, <laughs> it's happening. This is not a fucking drill. These are my poetry snaps. This is maybe like I don't know seventy five percent of the film. I think I like don't do Academy the Academy
1: Award.
2: <laughs> anyway, for best letterbox review goes to. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> With that, I hope you're still with us, listeners. But I'm going to talk about Miranda July now. <laughs> <laughs> please do, please do. Self-defined as a kind of multidisciplinary artist, Miranda July is an author of short stories, novels, a performance artist, a filmmaker, a singer, a video installation artist, actress, and basically she has done art in many, many different mediums. She was born Miranda Jennifer. Grossinger on that 15, 1974 in Bar Vermont. And her parents are both writers as well. And Grossinger as in like the Grossingers, that's in the Catskills, that's closed down now, which apparently was this infamous like resort in the Catskills that people would go to during the summers. Oh, interesting. There's mm. actually a very apparently interesting backstory as to why she was supposed to have that last name, but she's actually not blood related to that family. Because her dad is, like, the illegitimate child of one of the, ah, <laughs> of the, the people with that last name. Something like that. And so he didn't originally have that last name. And then later on, when he found out who his father was, got that last name. Something like that. It's wow, so quirky and random. Mm. <laughs> this will be interesting for the next episode when we talk about Miu and everyone will know. But quirky. her parents are both writers and, like, they ran this kind of, like, book publishing company that recently got like hostile (laughs) takeover and I was reading her dad's blog about it and he was like really broken about it but it's like this um hmm, publishing arm or publishing company that publish a lot of these alternative like kind of like philosophies like eastern religions homeopathy alternative healing practices things about spiritual akarna. karma so like pretty like hippy dippy stuff Mm. so that should give you some idea as to Miranda July's upbringing Mm. so Mm -hmm. Why is her last name July? She changed it to July when she was 15 after a character that she wrote in a fanzine that she was writing. Incredible. No notes. And her parents were totally on board and she changed her name. Notes. And part of it apparently was to distance herself from that last name Grossinger because she had no blood ties to that name. So she is essentially renamed herself, which when I think about the act of naming yourself is always like this very powerful act of like redefinition.
0: Self-determinism is definitely a theme across the two Mm. of the three of her features that I've seen so far.
2: Yeah. And in that sense, I feel like this kind of origin story that she has is kind of like this signal that she's a person who is like constantly reinventing herself. Mm. I'm going to go quickly into like what she was doing before she was filmmaking and also like the things that she does outside of filmmaking. But she went to University of Santa Cruz, but dropped out and then moved to Portland, Oregon, and then was a performance artist doing a lot of performance work, quote unquote, which I have no idea what these things entail. I think they entail a lot of like video work, her acting, her doing all the roles, like a one woman show kind of thing. I'm not too sure. Um, So for filmmaking, she has only made three features, including the one we're talking about today. And her first two features, me and you and everyone would know, and the future. And the period between those features is like long gaps between those features. It's because between the features, she's always working on other art. And she actually says that she thinks that she's the least confident with Phil because it's the thing that she's not allowed to do as often because it is so much more difficult to do. Hmm. Mm. Okay, I'm going to highlight a few projects that I think will make some sense of the kind of films that she's making. The first one I want to highlight is this thing that she used to do in the 90s called Big Miss Moviola, or right now it's called the Joni for Jackie Archive,
3: mm.
2: which you can find online. And essentially what she did was, in the 90s when she was a nobody, she gave out these pamphlets to ask women to submit tapes to her. And then she would send back a tape that she called a chain letter tape, like an email chain letter. Oh, wow. A compilation of the shorts that female filmmakers were making and then sending it out back to the people who sent them in. Creating this kind of underground community of female filmmakers who were just making stuff. And I think this is the most important part of, like, Miranda July. This ethos mm. of the Big Miss Moviola project yeah. of connection, uplifting other female filmmakers, and trying to connect with people with technology. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Another one that I tried to watch, but it was so difficult, is that she did this small project called Hazion with Margaret Quailey, who I love from Death Stranding. <laughs> and The Leftovers. And The Leftovers as well, yes. And The New Claire Denis movie. Oh, yes. And Donnie Brook. They made this fake relationship which played out completely on Instagram and everyone was like cluing in on like their breakup as a couple. It's all like video calls and then it ends like a big dance where they like deal with their their, the breakup. So it's like this like lo-fi thing. This happened quite recently, I think in the 2020 or something like that. She also had projects where she would get famous people to submit their emails and show it to people online like a web archive kind of thing. Or giving assignments to people of the public to like write a report of doing some stuff, which is part of the learning to love you more project where we should be asking people to repair something and then write a report about it, send a photo or to take a picture of their parents kissing and then send that photo in. And so these are all like part of like online archives and they're essentially little web art installations of Mm. collaboration over the internet. So basically you can already see that so much of a work is about connection And Mm -hmm. trying to pull a connection through the internet and to harness collaborative power and, like, to make stuff together and to work with what she is given. Like, see what signals the world gives her and then turn that shit into art. And it always feels like she's, like, constantly creating. Mm -hmm. And I feel like she's less a filmmaker than just an artist. Mm -hmm. And her art is actually a bigger project of just being Miranda July. Like, she's creating this, like, Body of work that is like larger than films and like project a certain kind of idea, which Mm. I find incredible. The more I read it, it's like it's insane that she's been doing this for so long and like has been obsessed with so many things for so long. Looking at her
0: work on her website that lists the dates of different projects and when things came out, it's a long list. It's really impressive. And thank you for that glimpse into the type of work that she's doing, Ben, that adds a lot of useful context and. Honestly, all three projects that you mentioned are really cool and use the internet in inventive ways.
2: And she's doing all this stuff before the internet really like takes yeah. off. Takes off. Like this is like pre-me <laughs> using the internet as a kid. You know what I mean? And like when she was doing the chain letter tapes, like the internet wasn't around. So like trying to do mini YouTube without oh, the internet.
0: In that so sense, great.
2: it's quite incredible. And I think it's going to be much more interesting when we talk about uh, me and you in
1: the next episode definitely thinking
0: the same thing it definitely plays into that
1: i feel like miranda july is one of those artists that like you can see it even during a time in her life where she didn't have a platform to like deliver her art to the world she would still be making art like continuously Mm -hmm. it's not a matter of logistics or like whether something can be made it's she just has a compulsion to make things and yeah. it feels like a compulsion yeah. right? and listening to her talk about this in an interview on the DJA podcast with Greta Gerwig it just she just seems like she's brimming with ideas she says she has a note on her desk where she writes down yeah. the projects for the next five years of her life And she just checks them off one by one once they finish. And Kajillionera, she says, was one of those projects that she checked off. To maybe just point out one other
2: project, like her most recent one that's on that website is in 2020, she did this project called Services, which is an art book of photographs. And I think this also kind of shows you the kind of person that she is. Where she, like, I think when COVID was happening, like early on, she received a phone call from the Philippines trying to sell her services to sell her book better because somehow she landed on a list of like self-published authors. And through this conversation, she knew it was a scam call, essentially from the (laughs) moment it happened, but kind of entertained it out of some weird, Mm. I don't know, feeling, and then started talking to this person and asking about them, finding out that she was this um, trans woman from the Philippines who was like struggling with money. And then in the end, hires her to make this photo project where she gets this woman to make photographs for her with little props and then turn that into an art book. Wow. And the very first one I think that she sent was like, take a photo of yourself in front of something you like. And she sends in this photo of her how-towing to a bunch of money. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm just thinking like that's a kind of like improvisational kind of creation, right, that she's always engaging yes. in and I think feels a part of the universes that she's creating as well. You know, I think a lot about the very useful
0: framing for viewing directors that Isabel Sandoval gave us on her episode with us about Eliza Hittman's It Felt Like Love when Isabel told us that a director's first movie is often the clearest glimpse at who they are, their heart is most on their sleeve, they don't have a ton of resources or oversight. And it seems to me like both in her early projects and continuing through her career, July has found unique ways to keep her heart on her sleeve and Mm. to forefront her focuses of connection, of reinvention, of very intimate looks at what make people feel,
1: not tick but feel Mm. Mm.
2: that's well said and i think and
1: i think you forgot to to mention and well not an important part of her work but i do (laughs) think well the first time that i ever knew of the name of the woman miranda july was after watching this little movie called madeline's madeline where she played Mm. helena howard's mother and oh my gosh dave a really incredible performance. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. oh, he likes making the connection right now. Yeah. Wow. But that was, yeah. Yeah, she is a... Well, we'll see later on in this series on her directorial efforts, but she is a really incredible actress.
2: And maybe, like, the last fun fact about her is that she's married to fellow Softie director Mike Mills. She's married to Meek Mills, who... <laughs>
1: I think the name is is Meek Meek Mills. Mills.
0: (laughs) Drake has beef with Miranda (laughs) July.
2: (laughs) And they met when they both had their first film's premiere at Sundance. I don't know when they got together, but like at some point. Yeah. And they have a child together, which the most important context for Kajillionaire is that this is the first film that she made after having a child. Mm.
1: Oh, shit. And then 20th Century Women is the first film that he made after having a child.
0: No, it would have been... Come on, Ooh, come maybe. on. Maybe.
2: Right? Is it? When did she
1: have the child? No. The, right. th- Not the I child. I think in, like the Her early child.
2: 2010s. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. Then it would have been... Child. I think early 2010s. Maybe 10th dream woman. So anyway, I think the first thing I want to dive into is this idea of quirk.
0: Okay. <laughs> Let me get my can opener. <laughs> right?
2: And I, like, I found it very funny to, like, look at the Wikipedia page of Miranda July, where, like, she has a section where it talks about her pushback against criticism, which I found really weird as part of the Wikipedia article. (laughs) Like, why do you have, like, this isn't really, like, factual, like, that she has to always push back against criticism. It's so part of, apparently, her persona, which I find very strange. Mm. Um, But it's true, like, it happens a lot in her interviews where people talk about this, where interviewers ask her, how do you feel about people calling your work twee, precious or quirky or something like that and she always has this pushback where she's like i feel like i get compared to like the male directors and they don't get the shit from them (laughs) like wes anderson or like i don't know who else where they don't get targeted for their preciousness i think wes anderson may be the one that most of us are more familiar with in terms of Mm. preciousness but i don't know because i see it and i i think she is quirky (laughs) I also think Wes Anderson is quirky. Yeah. yeah. And twee. But the problem is, mm-hmm. is he, does he get as much flack for it? But in, No, definitely not. Not in the public discourse. In fact, he gets more praise for it. Yeah. He gets praise for his obsession to detail. Yeah. For his. Yep, you're right. right? It gets mm-hmm. framed as precision. Yeah. yeah. There's this quote I saw that she said in an interview, which I think was like the most interesting way of thinking about what she's trying to do, where she says, you can be deep and also think that surfaces are interesting and fun. And so I think there's this criticism that the quirkiness is meant to be like this like thing that distracts you. And you kind of said something to that effect as well in your reaction, Eli. Something not, not quite. I don't think I would agree with distracts, but I think it does
0: in this movie serve as something that opens you mm. up to the emotions that come in as the movie progresses.
2: I feel like the characterizations and like the elements that are quirky Mm. are just part of the world Mm -hmm. and they might not actually have a function. And I think that's the thing that part of me would have struggled with because I talk about that with like other films where like Mm. things that don't serve a function are like confusing to me. But I think a lot of that kind of surface stuff doesn't serve a function, but is there to more of create a sense of a world that she is making you step into. Like in this, like the big ones, like the bubbles, and also that people play these heightened characters. Mm. And Evan Rachel Wood is a heightened character. But I think the way it works for me is that these things are quirky. But then the underlying emotional core of it is real. That it feels like a novel way of accessing this real emotional core that I feel very close mm. to. Can
0: you say more about how you feel close to it? Like what sure. themes and threads?
2: So with that, I need to talk about Evan Rachel Wood. because Yeah, please. Her mm. character, Odolio which she plays, I think, so incredibly. It's like a full-body performance. Yeah. And mm. she has to create the sense of a human that has not had a regular upbringing and essentially has been emotionally starved and developmentally stunted mm. and how she would perceive and work through the world. And I feel like when I watch it, Both times when I watched it, I was like, damn, I think there's an old Olio inside of me that feels this way as well. Mm. Mm. That feels that I've been missing these things that she also has been missing. Mm. Probably not to that effect or to the extent, but the extreme kind of points towards the thing that a lot of people can feel. Mm -hmm. Like the yearning for intimacy or connection or feeling like your parents didn't give you enough to understand the world. And I think that thing really rings true, even though she seems like such a, Like, if you took old Dolio and put her in, like, a different movie, you'd be like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) But in this movie, like, she's this strange thing, but then you kind of understand her through the story. And you can understand how she ticks and how she works and what she really, really deeply yearns for. And I think those are the things that really connect with me emotionally. And that's, like, really, Mm -hmm. like, what's under the surface of, like, quirk and strange things that's happening in the film.
1: That makes sense, yeah. There's a movie that Kajillionaire reminds me of that I want to talk about for a brief moment. And it's, in a lot of ways, it is so wildly different from this movie, but in some ways it is so wildly similar. Uh, it is Yorgos Lanthimos's Dog Tooth. Have either of you seen oh, it? Oh, yes, I've seen it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, so you guys know, right? Like, if you grow up lacking certain things right Mm. and both times they were done by parents and these are adult children that don't have I guess like a quote-unquote normal sense of how relationships go or how to interact Mm -hmm. with people but where Lanthimos takes it is more morbid it's like carnal Mm. they want sex they want violence I don't know. I'm not thinking. I'm remembering everything happening in the plot correctly, but Me I just, <laughs> re- I just re- remember the premise of it is that these adult children have been raised in a house closed off from the entire world, and their parents have taught them to view the world like even the language that they use is not regular language. Mm-hmm. So, in a similar way, old Dolio's progression or like the the starting point of old dolio's character is similar but then the progression goes in such a like beautiful positive Mm. loving kind of direction for me it it's just an example like i'm just watching a child learn how to love and Mm -hmm. i think that's just such an incredible thing for miranda july to just drop in this movie and be like, yeah, that's that's what this movie is about. It's not about the conning. Yes, it can be about the conning, but to me it's not about the conning. Mm-hmm. It's about learning how to love. I think a really special
0: level of that progression is the sort of metacognitive one in which old Dolio is attending these parenting classes mm-hmm. and learning about how children come to love. That's a really unique self-reflexive level of the plot which reminds me of teaching which Wilson and I mm. both do and sometimes the best way for kids to learn is to see that they are capable of different types of learning and to see how it works and to reflect on their own process of learning through that information there are some really unique levels of construction and self-reflexivity here to throw in a scene that I really responded to and loved a lot. The centerpiece of the movie is when the crew of scammers, including both the family and Gina Rodriguez's Melanie, when they go to try to scam uh, an old sick man and he has them pretend to be his family and just make sounds that he from outside the room can listen to. And it's a chance for old Dolio to role play and therefore envision the type of family structure that she wants to have. It's another step in her growth that brings in a kind of statement from July on the utility of art making and world building. And it's also kind of like putting on a little podcast for the old man.
3: So. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think that's, like, one of, like, the big scenes in the film where, like, it expresses the idea of what it's trying to say. It gives a sense of what Odolio is looking for and, like, is yeah. been missing her whole life. Because she has a sense of, like, what families are supposed to be like, but also a sense of what she thinks family should be like. And mm-hmm. then she's trying to, like, put those things mm-hmm. together and they don't go together. Yeah, And it's also a scene where she has to, like, come to terms with death. And, mm. yeah. And Mm -hmm. it's like this lyrical poetic scene because you have Melanie playing music that's from the soundtrack and the camera's like weaving in and out of the living room slash kitchen as it captures the family members doing different things. You have the mother who's like pretending to cook or something she's putting on an apron and then Old pretending to come back. No, Old being the fridge repairman. (laughs) (laughs) Melanie's like at the fridge and like kind of hitting on her and the father Robert's like watching TV, watching golf with a great line that I know you love. Oh my God, <laughs> it cracks me up. The way
0: that Richard Jenkins is trying to pretend to know about golf and he says, he got a, a one-holer and just immediately <laughs> comes up with the wrong
2: phrase. Yeah. It's so funny. That scene like ends in such a crushing way because Odolio has it fantasy and like her parents can not play those roles mm-hmm. and clearly understand what those roles are supposed to look like. And mm-hmm. have chosen not to do that for Old polio. Yeah. yeah. And for a while, you're thinking, like, every Rachel Wood's, like, crossing this as a character and, like, almost believing it. And then it cracks the moment Robert asks her, is he dead yet, essentially. Because yeah. they're putting on an act because they want this guy to die so they can get his money. That's all. Yeah. It's, like, hella crushing. And then...
1: It's rough. Have you ever recorded a podcast that made you realize what you were missing your entire life? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Anyway, uh how do we move on from that, Wilson? We can't. <laughs> people are gonna turn off from this. <laughs> anyway. Uh, people want realness. They do, they do. I think that scene, like how it ends in that kind of like starkness, is like part of her design when she comes to these films. Like that layer of like whimsical or like weirdness always has like a very dark core to it. Mm-hmm. And you see that hmm. in scenes as well as in the movie, like. You forget that of the sheen of Quirk, that her movies go to really, like, sordid places when it comes to, like, death or, like, sexuality, that it's, like, a bit mm. icky. Like, she likes to go to that icky place. But when yeah. you look at the movie posters, you don't realize it. You don't think it's there. And I think the ickiness is, like, her secret weapon. In her joy, there is deep fear. And it's almost like that layer of, of surface, is to mask those issues that she's trying to dig into. Hmm. Hmm. And not to, like, let them go over easy, but to, like, trying to present them in a different light. To make art mm-hmm. of it. I think about um, the scene where Robert tries to sleep with Melanie, which, like, comes out of nowhere. like It's this, like, this really aggressive thing that he and his wife are doing together to this stranger who has shown no signs of interest, which I think suddenly gives you a clue to, like, There's something more deeply wrong with them as people Mm -hmm. that's scarier about them as people. Yeah, yeah. The fact that they've brought up Old Dolio the way it is should already be scary enough, but you kind of forget about it because it's entertaining. But then this scene comes in and it reminds you that this is kind of fucked.
1: Yeah, but it really comes to a head at that point in the movie, right? Because right after that, it is that whole confrontation scene where Old Dolio asks her mom to call her Han. That's yeah, and ensues yeah. everything else that happens in the movie. I could talk about any of these scenes. Like, there's too many good scenes, but I actually want to
2: ask you, Eli. Yeah. Because I know you, you, your criticism was that you felt like some characters were making decisions that didn't quite make sense for the characters. You were saying something along those lines, right? Yeah. Yes. Can you elaborate? <laughs> I did say that. <laughs> Can you elaborate? Because I'm curious. Yeah. And I, yeah. I kind of understand where you're coming from. You know, something clicked for me about what
0: I didn't respond to earlier on in this recording, when you talked about how much of the movie hinges on characterization, I would say the twofold things for me are one, what I already said about not feeling like I could connect with Evan Rachel Wood's performance in particular, mm. even though I see the intention of projecting woundedness. I think sometimes it works. Mm. when July is particularly supportive with the camera using close-ups. But oftentimes I find it hard to access, and that long hair, as much a part of her character it is, does not do her any favors in terms of facial access. The voice I also find to be really hard to get past. It's a challenging performance, but I fully admit that it could be just a me thing and maybe would require a reviewing to sort of be able to pierce the walls that this character purposefully has put up as part of her character construction
2: yeah apparently that's Evan Rachel Wood's real voice really what that she pitches up because apparently pitching it up is better for her vocal notes or something huh. so apparently that's like actually how she sounds <laughs> wow and, but it's not good for her apparently to speak in that way Oh. Like, she mentions it several times uh, in interviews and stuff. Yeah, which is, like, oh. really interesting. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I think, like, I get a sense <laughs> from her as an actress that she responds really well to Old Olio's characterization, like, that she felt like there was an Old Odolio in her as well. Mm. And I'm very curious about Evan Rachel Wood now because I think she, when she's, like, doing the press stuff, she puts on, like, a, a screen
3: mm-hmm. that I'm
2: starting to think, like, she... Projects a certain kind of way But that Mm. might not be the real person behind that Hmm. I'm very curious about that now Anyway, you were saying something, Eli
0: Yeah, when it comes to Character decision making I think there are a lot of things that Either I feel Come out of the blue Don't necessarily make Sense to me Watching as to why A character did a certain thing Or That feel very hyper-constructed for the sake of pulling off in particular the climax and the goal of catharsis there. So to give an example of each, when Melanie wants to stage for Old Dolio the breast crawl that Old Dolio has become fixated on as part of this child-rearing process, and Melanie says, I know a place that's darker where we can go than Melanie's Closet. And she takes her to the gas station off of the bar where they met one time. Mm -hmm. I saw that coming and I thought, oh, the dark place she's going to take her is this dark space where Melanie was earlier when she got a call from her mom. Mm -hmm. And that feels narratively convenient. But I don't get why make that choice to bring her specifically there other than for audience recognition of we've seen this space before and then to lead into the earthquake that gives old Dolio her revelation that she's been living too focused on death and has a new lease on life now. So that's sort of something that I don't see the internal logic for Melanie from other than to give the audience a specific type of experience. When it comes to the climax, Robert and Teresa's long game ploy, I both see how that's meant to be an extension of their characters and inability to change as scammers while still trying to communicate a type of love mm-hmm. for old Dolio. They've been so unrepentantly cruel to old Dolio throughout up until that dinner scene, which we soon learn is a lie, mm-hmm. maybe kind of that. I don't really believe them putting in the effort to make this a long game, particularly from Teresa from Robert. We get sense of remorse From Teresa, we don't really get that kind of access or show of affection. So it's a very convoluted plot in the end that old Dolio is very reactive to. A lot of things happen to her in the end. Mm -hmm. And not that that's always a problem, but it's so complicated. And it's complicated to the extent that I can't focus on anything other than The type of emotional experience that Randall July wants me to have from this ending, Mm. rather than having that experience and believing the emotions of the ending. It is very constructed. And I also will say that I feel like I could see pretty much every step as it played out, what would happen, and that it would, you know turn out to be exactly 525 on the counter and then they would kiss and i felt bored and taken out of the emotions by that
1: sorry it's fine <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i thought you were not trying to fight today
2: i'm trying to think of how to rebut this i'm stating my honest opinion he brought his boxing gloves but you want to you want to say something wilson um uh... <laughs> oops <laughs> no <laughs> okay
1: I mean uh, no no go first Ben I'm gonna think I mean
2: it. I'm just thinking I feel like when I watch this film I have to put my brain on the shelf and like watch it with just my heart is how I think about this film because sometimes I struggle with that with like different films because like there's not enough things to latch onto. but this one is like I kind of just latch onto the emotional storyline I think a lot of it especially the first go around is actually hinges a lot on music. Like, Imam Mazari's score is, like, ridiculous. And, like, if you buy into that music and how it makes you feel, and it makes me feel a lot of things, Mm -hmm. that it imbues the story with a lot of emotional engagement. And I do wonder, like, if I watched this film the first time without music, what would have happened? Like, would I have bought it as much? I do wonder about that. That's really interesting,
0: Ben, because early on in the movie, I was thinking... This is leaning pretty hard on the music, and I'm loath to use that as a complaint because music is a part of the experience, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. movies have that tool available to them to create emotion. Mm-hmm. But for things like old Dolio filling out sign-in forms to walk into the class or walking into a space and just a take of her walking against a white wall when it's playing this very heartfelt, interesting music, I felt more dissonance than
2: emotionally drawn in. Mm. I don't know. I can't answer that question I put forth, but I think it just kind of works for me in a in a way that I cannot mm. explain. Like it's something that just works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think about like like do the characters do things that make sense? Like Melanie's character, who is played incredibly by Gina Rodriguez and like very vibrant as like the so-called normal person in a group of like weird people. <laughs> and even her normal person's like kind of odd
1: <laughs> not quite normal
2: <laughs> yeah the fact that she even goes along for the ride with these weird people shows she's not quite normal and brings so much like life into the and they mentioned this in like interviews like the film doesn't really start until she comes in and then you're like something has been disturbed in the vibe of this she's like from a different movie coming in to mm. fuck with this movie to fuck with Miranda Gilles aesthetic and like characterizations here's like a normal all-american girl coming in and what does she do to them and she's
1: puerto rican
2: <laughs> yeah but they they call her all-american which i find very funny as part of her characterization
1: really doesn't she say oh i don't want to get arrested yeah. i'm puerto rican yeah or something but like i think that.
2: that's part of um july's yeah. radical way that she's trying to, to rewrite um, yeah like kind of like a funny radical line. reimagining of what we might think of as a quote-unquote all-American girl, you know? So I think about Melanie and like how she goes along with these things and like it's hard to buy a person who would do this. Yes. And I fully admit there's a ton of contrivances in this film to make you go from one thing to the other thing. But why it works for me is that because the emotional core of it works, makes sense, that those problems of plot contrivances kind of go away from me when I watch it. Right. And I fully know that
0: there are movies for which I love that core and Mm. am willing to overlook plot contrivances. Those things ultimately don't matter in the face of what the director has in their mind and how effectively they communicate that. And I think because of that, even though that might have seemed like the hardest hitting I've been on the episode, it doesn't matter so much in the face of The lack of connection, I feel, to old Mm -hmm. Dolio and Mm. the overall disconnect, I feel, from the
2: theme making about Mm. family in this Mm. case. I feel like sometimes when I think about this film in relation to uh, other two films, it's her first straightforward film with like one plot. Yeah. Mm. And it's kind of like her first time trying to like string the scenes into a plot. Mm-hmm. but they're kind of like disparate things that all talk about family. And you could have imagined a version of this where it's like vignettes of different people experiencing stuff that has to do with family mm. to express a certain sentiment about family. But mm-hmm. I don't think there's like messaging in the themes. It's like expressing a certain sentiment and like a certain way of looking at family or a certain kind of state of things mm. that like, usually for me, I struggle with when there's no message, but. I'm okay with it for some reason Mm -hmm. because I like, like Mm -hmm. living in July's world Mm. and to that cash register thing, that thing hits for me like so hard, (laughs) like ridiculous, like a number hits
1: so hard emotionally. Like
2: I don't understand.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Out of the two July films that I've seen, this is like by far the stronger one because I think that in between well, I guess we have, I haven't seen the future yet, but I, I do think her honing in and doing what Ben was saying, focusing on one character or one set of characters and one plot line and honing in on like that emotional graph, her own emotional graph, not Ben's emotional graph, her own <laughs> emotional graph yeah. for the film, makes it so effective. Like Ben, I was so sold on anything these characters <laughs> were going to do. Even if it was super predictable, I was along for the ride. But I, I do think that it is crucial to get that connection with old Dolio and that character. Because mm-hmm. I feel like if that performance feels sticky or mm. you're not connecting with it, it just it doesn't work. Because you don't really mm-hmm. see someone that is desperately in need of connection but not not understanding that they desperately need connection she's giving a performance of someone who is lacking something that's why there's so many things removed because it's just lack she doesn't have it she doesn't have that emotional core to her but I think if you're sold and you start to understand what's going on at the same time she herself sort of figures out that oh, I haven't had the same experience as all these people. Like, I want to be breast crawled. I I don't mm. want to be of gentle birth. As one of the first lines mm. that Richard says to,
0: is that what he says? Like, I'll try. F- yeah, I turned on the subtitles to rehear that because he says it very quietly.
1: It's what of gentle you, birth, and he says what not of gentle birth, which means I googled this. A gentle birth is a is a painless birth for the mother. Oh yeah and i think that already clocks you in if you understand what that means it already clocks you in of this strained relationship because teresa feels like she's owed something by old Mm -hmm. Dolia. or she doesn't need to because of this non-gentle birth there's a disconnect there and she cannot Raise her like that, and supposedly they made an agreement. <laughs> you agree to not being raised normally.
0: <laughs> That's what he said, right? Maybe yeah. part of it for me also is that, in addition to that gentle birth line, everything for me about that relationship telegraphs that it's not healthy at every beat. So it's hitting that very hard, and I don't, I don't feel anything positive that Old Dilio gets from the relationship, even if it's a facsimile of positive feeling or manipulation into sticking around.
1: It's all that she knows. It's, it's like all
2: that she has. It's all that she knows. Like she doesn't understand what she should have. Like she, what she doesn't even have, right? But yeah, it's definitely like, you need to buy that this character can be a real person. Like even mm-hmm. in this heightened world, you need to buy it. Yeah. Too. And if you don't, mm-hmm. the film doesn't work. Because this film is about Odolio and how she falls in love with Melanie that this mm-hmm. is the film. yeah and i yeah. just don't buy old olio yeah yeah so if you don't mm-hmm. buy old olio it's like really difficult and
1: yeah i can see that like but also because ben brought it up like 10 minutes ago <laughs> and now i'm talking i want to dive deeper into the score which mm-hmm. i think is pretty incredible and i think i hope i'm saying emile moseri's name correct but if Emile Mosseri is listening to this podcast, I love you. And you are the greatest of all time composer only after scoring for a few years. So before the recording, you yes. said you didn't tell me who did the score. And you were like,
0: when you hear this name, you're going to flip. And I, I, I'm so sorry if Emil Mosseri is listening, but I actually
1: am unfamiliar with Mr. Mosseri. Yeah, so he didn't really have a career yeah. in film scoring prior to... I guess 2019 2019 which is the year before this movie came out where he scored um the last black man in San Francisco and and I guess he made really chummy friends with the people at Plan B and also got to know Miranda July through making that first score for the last black man in San Francisco cuz he did the score for Kajillionaire and also did the beautiful score for Minari, which came out that same year. So they're all plan B movies. Like Minari, I don't even like that much, but that score slaps as well. Yeah. (laughs) But I think his most effective score is this score right here for Kajillionaire. I think what he's telegraphing to you is what Miranda July wants you to feel emotionally entire time. Like, Mm. even if there's nothing i guess emotional going on in the plot or what's happening on screen like you say he she's signing into this talk about raising children and the music is there for some reason but she's feeling things she's feeling things Mm -hmm. and it's all about that growth you're building a base of a tender score that once he lets rip once he lets swell in those moments where melanie grabs her hand and runs away from um her parents or that ending scene it lets you or lets me i can't speak for both of you but (laughs) it lets me transcend into another existence i think it's so uplifting it's incredible i think it just sounds to me what love feels like Mm. and Mm. not a lot of scores directly hit that feeling for me yeah like that they can express the idea of love just through music right Mm -hmm.
2: even without the image you can get a sense of it yes right
1: exactly the
2: scene that like i think about it's the fucking nail scene. Oh. <laughs> which is like the first sense of the romance that's brewing between them which on the second watch I was like this makes absolutely no sense that mm-hmm. this is romantic. But that music comes on and then that's the part in my emotional graph where I'm like what is going on in the scene? Like why is this important? Why is this music hitting right now? What is happening with the story? I had no idea it would be a love story. But that scene mm. was my first clue because of the music and I was like okay? And I was a little bit like confused. And even the cinematography in that scene, like to accentuate like the dreamy sunlight mm-hmm. when she's removing the nails from Melanie. Yeah, the backlight is incredible
1: in that Ooh. scene.
2: And then you get a sense of, oh, th- this is like this is something.
1: Mm-hmm. Something's
2: happening. Mm-hmm. I want to throw out a comparison Yeah. of using music Please. in a way that doesn't make sense early in your film. That's also about love. It's in the Mood for Love. Ha! Oh, I thought you were going to say that. <laughs> like, because I remember when we talked about In Mood for Love, like, I talked about how, like, Umeji's theme comes up so early, and you're like, it doesn't right. really make sense. And, and it, all it does is exude a sense of loneliness. And I think this operates in a similar way, right? Where, mm-hmm. I guess she is relying a lot on the music to get you there, but the image is there to support that statement of mm-hmm. that feeling. Because in the end, this is a film about lonely people. And, People yearning for connection. If anything, all of her films are about lonely people yearning for connection. So this is just like a very long version of that. Because <laughs> a lot of the films are like little vignettes of that. This is like one long thing about that.
1: Mm. Hmm. I want to bring up a quote from an interview that Mosseri gave to Composer Magazine about working on this film. So he talks about meeting July and seeing a cut of this film that has... Temp tracks through it. And it's quite a long quote, but I'm going to say the whole thing. So he says, I felt like the film kind of washed over me in a way. It kind of sneaks up on you in a way that is very unique. I was taken by how it's sort of framed as this bizarre heist movie. So there's music that scores this family being up to no good. So I was thinking, what could my version of that music be? Then overwhelmingly, It became a love story and a very romantic film. I was really excited by that. Like, how do I write this fearlessly, unapologetically romantic music that feels like it's also cut from the same fabric as the film? It's a strangely Hollywood story in a way. Very beautiful. And what he cites as one of his... Touchstones while writing the music for this film was uh, Nina Rota's work. So, Nina Rota is the famed composer, I guess, best known for his work on The Godfather, but mm-hmm. even more famed, or I think even more aptly for his work on Fellini's films. So, okay, Eight mm. and a Half. And so, if you are familiar with those scores, even though they're not romantic films per se wrote a score imbues a lot of fellini's films with this sense of a swelling romance what else do i want to say about the score Uh (laughs) (laughs) but yeah I, i i do think that the quote also brings up the point that i was saying earlier about how i think this film is a modern version of hollywood romance Mm. like Lubitsch, done in a in a modern (laughs) way in like the found connections in the weirdest way possible like in the score or in the way that they do the backlight in the scenes but it gives me a similar feeling with a different approach Mm.
2: i like this idea that the romance is sneaking up on you Mm -hmm. in a way like you can think of the film as melody doing a heist Ah! to take odolio Away from her family.
1: A heist on your heart.
2: Yeah. And I think... Like, Melanie doesn't make sense. But I think that's what makes her heroic. Mm. She does something that makes absolutely no sense to save a person from their family. Mm. And I think that is undoubtedly a romantic gesture. It's completely selfless Mm -hmm. in that sense. That she sees a person in need and then she is compelled to save and do something about it.
1: Mm. I am still interested in Melanie's character. She's framed as the straight person in this cast of characters. But I am still intrigued by, I guess, her decision to, to give old Dolio all that love. And I think it's sort of, it might, in my head, I'm sort of trying to link her relationship with her mom, which we only get to see in one other scene. Hmm. which is in that bathroom. Kind of.
0: Right? We we see a few scenes where she talks with her mom, and we get the sense that her mom is a little bit overbearing or really wants to connect with her and show her care and is going about it in ways that irritate Melanie. Yes. And maybe Melanie is finding a way to... Care for someone else And that leads her to On the phone after the earthquake scene Mm -hmm. Reconnect with her mom a little bit more earnestly It seems
1: Yeah, I was just trying to Link that contrast And make it be a a reason for her I see it, yeah
2: Yeah, yeah, totally A part of me also wants to complicate that relationship And like, think about how it's also a little fucked
1: Say more Mm -hmm. The overbearingness of her mom No, between Melanie and Odolio Oh,
2: yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because, like, like yes, like, I did also say that this love felt very selfless, but also strange in the way that, like, because old Dolio is kind of like a child. Yes, I see. Right? Like, she's developmentally stunted that this is the ickiest part of the relationship because it's romantic and, like, possibly sexual, right? Yeah.
1: You're getting me riled up.
2: It's horny. Yeah, it's horny. And I think from old Dolio's side, like, it's a it's a very... It's a physical urge she doesn't understand, right? Yes. Yes. So that's a problem of her development. Wait, no. What? No, she does not understand. She doesn't understand it. (laughs) No. So, like, thinking about, like, how Melanie puts herself into this relationship is interesting because it's, like, kind of having a relationship with somebody who is probably not ready for one Mm -hmm. and doesn't understand the concept of that. And I think the film does kind of paper over that fact and it doesn't kind of engage with that idea at all mm. and i wouldn't call it a failing but it's like a thing that's like a hmm question mark for me when i think about it yeah, yeah. and bookmark this for our conversation on me and you and
1: everyone oh, we know yes <laughs> mm. yes. Yep. yes yes but
2: yes. i don't know just get to throw it out there thinking about this film because like it makes me think about like sometimes miranda july does things that are like a little like she's like way more transgressive than people realize sometimes i think or like on the surface she's way more transgressive than the surface that she projects i think Hmm. and i do wonder about that when i think about how we perceive her and how she is the creator of that work Hmm. i have no conclusion but yes (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah i'm not sure what to say i think this is a conversation that gets a lot more detailed in Mm -hmm. me and you and everyone we know i would agree that it's there and it's not really investigated or problematized mm-hmm. within the text here mm-hmm. in Kajillionaire.
1: But I think, yes, there could be a lot to dig there, but I think the decision that July probably made to pare this down and to focus on the conflict between her and her parents makes this a lot simpler and a lot easier for me to buy into emotionally. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like if that relationship was, co- like, was more visibly complicated on screen, I would have m- more issue with the mm-hmm. the emotional highs that this film gives me, which I think are the best parts of the film. I still I love this film,
2: but of course I think it has a bit of a, a naive heart.
3: Mm, of
2: you course. Know? Of but it's maybe like the reason I love it that it is like painfully sincere and like almost to the point of like forgetting that there's ways to complicate this Mm. that it maybe could have been complicated maybe should have Mm
1: -hmm. but
2: kind of almost like it's headlong blind into it yeah it's like brand of not positivity but like of celebrating connection and Mm -hmm. expressing this deep yearning and this deep loneliness that she thinks people can sometimes have Without Mm -hmm. having to be Odolio. And I see that streak in July's work. Where like she is not naive. But it's like very clear. Like she has this big thing she wants to say. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it might not always be the most nuanced thing. Mm -hmm. I feel. Yeah. But it is sincere. And well-intentioned. Always, Mm -hmm. I think.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about, I guess, this whole podcast. (laughs) Is about comparing a popular work to a lesser known work. And usually the popular work is made at the height of fame Mm. when they're able to like level up production wise. And you can see the difference between this and me and you. But Mm -hmm. I do feel like there is a lot less that is lost Mm -hmm. in between this versus i guess a lot of other filmmakers that we've talked about mm. in the podcast because the way that she sees the world still feels so like unique in her own yeah. and even the ideas that she's trying to play with still feel so of her mm-hmm. even with this bit, yeah i think it's like because she still
2: feels like an indie filmmaker like sometimes like you have like indie filmmakers who like from their third or second project, when they get seen, then they get the budgets that they want, and then they start to kind of sell out, maybe artistically.
1: Mm, Yeah.
2: Like, where, like, they're trying to make the thing that will be more sell better or whatever. But, like, this still feels like part of her brain. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel corrupted by a capitalistic need or by, like, needing to cater to certain kinds of audiences. And it really makes sense. Like, I'm reading these interviews, and I'm like, damn, I think Miranda July is, like, still not doing that well in terms of like making money because <laughs> she just spends all the time making work. Like she just wants to be creatively free to make stuff. Yeah. Mm. And for this film, she said that she really didn't struggle with money because Brett Pitt's company, you know, <laughs> and that was like, so freeing for her creatively. Oh yeah. That's plan B. Yeah. I think it still feels like this pure indie mm-hmm. cinema,
1: mm-hmm. you
2: know, that, that feels like not a lot of hands came in to like fuck around with it. Yeah. Which is rare, it, yeah, I and think. she said
1: yeah. in that interview with Greta Gerwig, she said this was the first time that everyone on set understood what she was trying to do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was like That's incredible it was, and also pretty hilarious
2: <laughs> I was reading this like interview about like her process. And she was talking about how like she felt like oh I, f- I think I finally made it. This sense of like feeling like she w- she made it was like when she was on set thinking about something, mm. and somebody was walking up to her, about to like talk to her, and then some other crew member like stopped that person and was like, "If you haven't learned that." You shouldn't interrupt her when she's in this state, you haven't learned anything on set. Oh, <laughs> like oh, like when she's in that zone. And she was like, Wow, when I heard that, I was like, Wow, people get me now. <laughs> oh. That when she's in a zone of like creation. And I'm like, Wow, well, I think I would not vibe well with Miranda July when I'm talking to her. Mm. <laughs> Cause like I think I'm a person who just like go at a person and like And I'm very impatient sometimes. Mm. So, like, I don't know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you have Ben as an AD breathing down your neck. Yeah, I think I would
2: get fired (laughs) if I was working on her set. Because I'd be like, what do you know? Let's do it now. Let's do it now. And she'd be like, I need to think. (laughs) Yeah. And yet she makes art that you appreciate. Like, I think I just vibe with what she's thinking about, like, with internet, with connection, with, like, the modern age, in the digital Mm. age. Mm-hmm. Mm. funny enough i think kajillionaire feels less about modern things than her older oh, movies
1: yeah right i think i would agree yeah, yeah. It, there's a timelessness yeah true great american romance i, I will forever be holding up the side. kajillionaire is our new great american romance <laughs> Is is
2: that your that's your transomatic annexation? I just think it's so. Yeah. <laughs> that's your old Hollywood I just voice. think it's
1: so beautiful, like the way they lay it out, the ending or the the back third of it. That there's like a bill of love mm. that needs to be fulfilled, that needs to be rung up, and yeah, and the <laughs> the, the the process of them going through the list. Mm. I don't know, like we we talk about how I love process films like films that Mm -hmm. show the process and this in a weird way i'm like drawing that link and making that connection but it's just a process of like learning learning how to love (laughs) or just getting these first experiences and similarly at the end it's a literal bill that they are running up as as a refund And, like, I feel that linking the two that, like, brings up that same swelling of emotion. Yeah. I don't know. Eli's not... I'm seeing it in your face, Eli. You're not buying it. (laughs)
3: Hmm.
0: (laughs) You don't have to convince me, though. I mean, I really have enjoyed getting to see how strongly this movie speaks to you both. It's a joy to see, and Kajillionaire not giving me that same experience doesn't prevent me from Gosh. taking real joy and seeing how it speaks to you guys. Thanks, Karsten, run,
2: <laughs> Oh, my God. To not end this episode on that note, I want to just <laughs> drop one quick quote from July about how she thinks about making films. And I think she was talking about Kajalina, but I think it kind of applies to the rest of her films that when she thinks about filmmaking, that she, quote... I want to make a world and I want to get to dream the same dream as someone. End quote. Mm, I like the ambiguity of that final someone. A lot of her films are not just about like expressing an idea but to actually make a connection to you.
3: Mm. For
2: example, me and you and everyone you know is like a second person reference, right? So like, like I think even her not, like a short story collection is also this kind of second person reference where she's trying to speak directly to you and I think that these films are doing that. They're trying to speak to you. And she's coming from herself as Miranda July.
1: Mm, beautiful.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts so you know when our next episode drops. And keep up with Deep Cut on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd at Deep Cut Pod. And you can join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. And thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork and we are welcome because I know Justina loves these movies
3: (laughs) yeah
2: okay yeah I'm Wilson I'm Ben I'm Eli take care and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time laugh 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 cry cry cry
1: just lack she doesn't have it she doesn't have that emotional core to her she's lacking yeah well like, yeah oh. is that a joke
2: i'm confused <laughs> is that a joke
1: isn't that slang like oh like
2: is she lacking oh <laughs> i don't know what that slang I don't means I mean, I is
3: it. <laughs> it as an end tag or something